0: things that we discover as we read the Bible is that the, the sinfulness of mankind is not something that is recently developed. When you read that, that, the passage and just think about the passage that Justin read this morning, intense evil has been happening from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. And that's one of the things that we're going to be considering this morning. It's important for us as believers to be an influence in society, to be to do what we can to be salt and to be light. And uh, sometimes we can feel oppressed in our culture and in our society. we just feel like the evil is so great. there's no way I could make a difference or honestly, many people just feel like culture and society is so sinful that there's no way for me to live out righteousness in my life. And one of the great things that we're going to see in our passage this morning is that this is not as evil as the world has been. It was much worse at a time uh, previously. And not only that, Uh, It is possible to live a righteous life, to honor and worship God, to be an influence in society, because we see people like Noah uh, and God looking at the earth and just saying everybody is evil continually, and yet looks at Noah and says, but Noah found favor in God's eyes. Um, none of us, like we sit in a room full of people who bless us, who love us, who encourage us. We can point to many people that are examples of godliness, but for Noah and his family, that was it. And we're going to see just the, the power of that. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be considering um, what we learn about God. And we're going to start in chapter 5 of Genesis, and we're going to Uh, move through that quickly and then we're going to end our last point is going to be the passage that Justin read this morning and one of the things that we see is that um, the Bible from the very beginning communicates God's power and his holiness and the fact that he judges sin and we see that clearly the other thing though that we see that is so emphasized is how gracious and merciful and loving God is. One of the things that we discover in our current society is people love to hear about God's mercy and God's kindness, and they hate to hear about judgment and wrath. But one of the things that you'll notice as you read the Bible, as you read passages on the on the gospel, on the good news of grace and forgiveness, one of the things that you discover is that God never separates the truth about his grace and his love from the reality of his holiness and coming judgment. Think about verses as simple as John six twenty three, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not separated. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's that perish and eternal life. But if you read verse 17 and 18, it talks about how Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already under judgment. Or John 3.36, if you believe in the Son of God, you will have eternal life, but if you don't obey the Son of God, you will not have eternal life, but God's wrath will abide on you. And yet we have people who, and churches, and and sometimes it's easy for us to feel this way, if we want to share the gospel, we want people to come to Christ, we feel like the thing we need to do is water down the gospel, take out everything negative, never talk about God's judgment, don't talk about sin. That upsets people. And if you tell anybody that, nobody would come to Christ. So let's change the message and just talk about God's goodness, love, and mercy, and um, people will like that, and they'll come. But that's actually something that we discover, is that when you remove God's holiness and the coming judgment, people are actually just happy to live wicked, sinful lives and shake their fist in God's face. And God's the message of love and grace and forgiveness is weakened it is changed. It is actually erased as we leave out what God says about all of who he is. And, um, you know, the Bible tells us that that's going to happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And you want to know something? It's important for you and I that we are reading the Bible from beginning to end, that we are understanding it exactly how God has communicated, and that we don't convince ourselves as we live our lives that there won't be a coming judgment, that there will not be accountability. Even for believers, we understand that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's something that should be in our mind. And also that we never forget to emphasize God's love and grace and mercy and compassion so that when we sin, when we see sin in our lives, when we see sin in the lives of others, that we never send the message that you need to run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did, right, in the Garden of Eden. They went and hid, and what did God do? He came and found them. When Cain murdered his brother, what did God do? He came and found him, and he appealed to him, and he, he pleaded with him to make his heart right. And when Cain shook his fist in God's face and decided to kill his brother instead, um, God goes again and he reaches out to Cain. And when Cain fails to repent, God pours out grace and mercy on a hard-hearted, wicked person. But what we find is true is that while God right now in this life is pouring out his goodness on the evil and the good, there is going to be a day where pouring out goodness ends. And everybody will face God and his holiness. And that's the amazing thing about being a Christian is for you and I, we will stand before a holy God, but God will see Jesus. And, but people who stand before a holy God without Jesus will have his undiluted wrath for all of eternity. And it's interesting, as you read the New Testament, this section of Scripture that we've been going over is appealed to over and over and over as proof that God will judge. And that's because when you read the Bible, man, you can point God's mercy, God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love, God's mercy, his abounding mercy, And then there are people who say, well, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. But God has demonstrated and proven all of who he is throughout creation. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, We should not be shocked or surprised when we see sin in the world. Um, We read and believe Genesis, and that allows us to understand everything wrong in ourselves, everything wrong in the world. And it also communicates clearly God's love and mercy, our need for redemption, and the reality that we can live a righteous life in the midst of a sinful world. So there's three things we're going to think about. Uh, The first is that in a fallen population, sin will be present and it will increase. None of us should look around at the world and be surprised. So we're going to see that in Genesis 4 and chapter 5. So we'll go quick on that, I hope. Second thing we're going to look at is that even in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, it is possible to live a holy, faithful, righteous life. And we're going to see that primarily in the life of a man named Enoch. And then the third thing we're going to see is that God's unimaginable mercy is true. But he is holy, and he will judge sin. So let's consider uh, this first point, that in a fallen population, sin will be present and it will increase. Look at Romans 5.12. It says just Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So we know that we're born sinners. We don't look around at kids. We, lo- we look around at kids and we love kids and we think they're beautiful and we can't wait to have more kids. And on the note of having kids, <laughs> and on a lighter note, <laughs> yesterday, John and Lily got engaged. So John's my, my son. And um excuse me. Not cuz they're having kids. Uh, not, <laughs> well, let me circle back around to the kid thing. So I've got two I've got two daughters that are married, um Jessica and Julianne, and we love their husbands. I was telling um, um our family the other day that I really try to get along with Jessica well cuz I don't want to lose my relationship with Carlos. Um <laughs> And uh, we love our in-laws, so we got our we got two kids married. Our sons both got engaged, and we we're guessing that they'll probably both get married. But we're all taking bets on who has kids first, <laughs> and we're thinking that the last to get married might be the first to have kids. So I don't know. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> <break your> little- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are super excited about that. But one of the things is we think about little kids when they're born is we don't look at little kids and think, oh my goodness, they're so innocent. They're just like kids come out of the womb selfish. They scream for what they want. They cry. Little kids hit each other. They grab things from each other. And we just recognize that people are born sinful. And so that's not a shock. It's not a surprise. When we struggle with sin in our life, that doesn't shock and surprise us because we were born fallen. And that's one of the things that we're going to see is how that impacts life. And last week we saw how that impacts families, but it doesn't just impact the family, it impacts the culture and society. Genesis chapter 4 verse 17 to 26, I'm not going to read it, but I want to point a few things out. One of the things that you see is that this is a genealogy and it just ends with a list of names. And there are these comments, genealogies are amazing things, they're wonderful. One of the reasons that genealogies are important is they communicate how things got from one thing to the next. And there are some really important things communicated in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5. And it's just like a list of names. And, And you could sometimes, when you're reading a genealogy, think it's just a list of names. Why is that in there? Well, one of the reasons that it's in there is because these are historical accounts of real people. And so they list names. And these genealogies, they appear in Genesis, but these same genealogies appear in First Chronicles. They appear in Jesus himself in his genealogy. And while some people would look at the opening chapters of Genesis and say, it's not real, it's just a mythical story, it didn't really happen, you look at the genealogy of Jesus and it lists those right along with the names of people that nobody would deny the existence of. And so these, those are not things, genealogies, are not things that are put in mythical, parabolic-type descriptions. They are put in historical accounts. Specific people, specific names, dates, locations, distances, all of those things... Uh, communicate that the Bible is teaching exactly what happened. So it says here that in Genesis chapter 4, we, we see a, a note that Enoch built a city. Um, we see the story about Lamech who takes these two wives and kills some people. Just that wickedness. We see Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jubal, the father of all who play the light, the lyre and the harp. Um, Tubal Cain who forged instruments of bronze and iron, and then we see um Adam and Eve having Seth, a replacement for Abel, and we see that people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now, have you ever one of the things I think about in these genealogies is have you ever thought about what makes us who we are? Is it nature or is it nurture? Do you inherit your personality or do you learn your personality? You know, I think about this, and it just, when you look at this, it seems like it says, it lists these people and says, they're the father of all who play the harp and lyre. Um, and just, you see these things, and you're like, wow, I think that people inherit certain things. I know for one of our kids, man, they just, they were born and incredibly musically inclined. We got uh, piano lessons for our girls when they were young. And then we had... Jackson, he was the fourth kid. We were busy. We were having a hard time chasing everybody around. And Jackson's like, I want to learn to play the piano. And we said, ask your sisters to show you something. And so they sit down. They showed him something. And the kid's a great piano player. And just, it just came natural to him. He didn't get the training that other people got. And so you see that genetic disposition towards certain things that gets passed down. But the other thing that you also see that is definitely clear is that we are not slaves to our genetics. We may have dispositions, but our environment and our own personal choices impact who we are and who we become. And so those are things that I think about. Chapter 5, some general observations about the genealogy in chapter 5 is that when you think about the purpose of it, it connects Adam to Noah. And when you think about the story, uh, society is growing. You know, a whole world started with Adam and Eve. Society is growing, and then God is going to drown the entire world. And so in a sense, we all come from Adam and Eve, but we all also come from Noah, his three sons, and each of their wives. We all have common genetic ancestry. That's one of the things that for a Christian, racism is impossible. Uh, if you are, it's not that Christians can't be racist. That is true. In history, that has happened. But anytime time it happens, it is because you are completely disconnected from the reality of what God teaches. We all come from Adam and Eve. Um, There is no better or worse race. All those types of things make no sense in a Christian worldview. Now racism, on the other hand, you could certainly promote and you could certainly argue for on the basis of evolution, that there are higher and lower forms that have evolved. And And actually, that's what Hitler did. And he was trying to create the perfect race. And that's not to say that people who believe in evolution are racist or are like Hitler. But I will say this. If you believe in evolution, you can rationally make a connection to racism, to the kinds of things that Hitler did. It makes logical sense if you hold to evolution. But for a Christian who believes the Bible, there is no place to see human beings as anything other than those made in God's image. And so understanding and reading and thinking about and applying what the Bible teaches to our life and our thinking is critical. And one of the things you could think about is go into history, and you'll see people, churches, um, famous pastors who expressed racist things. And you want to know what that reminds you of? It just tells you people can be impacted by their culture. And when we think about that, we need to also take a step back. We need to think to ourselves, in what ways and with which ideas from our culture am I impacted? And a lot of the things about the Bible that offend people are because people who should have a Christian worldview, people who should embrace the things that God says, have allowed their thinking to be shaped by culture. Uh, One of the things you'll notice about Genesis chapter 5 is that when it lists people, it gives their ages. And people are really old. You know, people live like over 900 years. And that's one of the things, you know, you take, there are things in in, uh, the early chapters of Genesis that are confusing, that you really struggle to wrap your minds around. By the way, that should not be surprising. In fact, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, one of the most challenging passages in the Bible. We'll look at that a little later today. One of the most challenging passages, we should not be surprised that we read things And we sometimes struggle to connect the dots. And that's because this happened thousands of years ago. It's also because God doesn't specifically explain everything. He explains everything that you and I need to know to live a godly life. So we have everything in Scripture that we need, but we don't have everything in Scripture that we wish we had. Um, God left some of the details out. He left some things for us to wonder about. But on that age of people, um, two things that we can learn from that. Number one, when God made Adam and Eve, they were genetically perfect. The whole idea of evolution that people start as like primitive, um, unsophisticated species, and as time has gone on, we've gotten smarter and smarter, is not true. There has been the compounding of knowledge, but Adam was smarter than any person on earth. Because when he sinned and when he fell, sin began to corrupt everything in creation. His mind, his body. One of the reasons that people die younger is because we have genetic problems that they didn't have. But when you read the story of Genesis and you read the ages of people before the flood and after the flood, what you realize is that suddenly the age of people began to change. And people didn't live 900 years after the flood. By the way, when we look at the world, something significant about our environment changed after the flood. And uh, for evolutionists who would deny any of those things could happen. One of their faulty assumptions is that everything continues exactly like it's always been. And yet the Bible clearly teaches us that something changed. And we'll dig more into that when we get to the flood. Let me read Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created and when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his own, in his own likeness after his own image, and na- a son, and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. You know, it says he had other sons and daughters, and everybody says, where did wife's com- <laughs> Cain's wife come from? His other sons and daughters. And when you live that long, and you're having people are having that many kids, uh, the world population can grow, Um, and so that tells us some things. So that's one of the things that we learn is that in a fallen population, sin's going to increase, and that's exactly what we see happening. The second thing that we that you'll notice as you read the genealogy of of uh, chapter five is that people can be righteous. You know, I think about one of the things that God tells us. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So, God intends for us to be salt and light, to be an influence in society, and one of the things that you see here is we do that by reading and studying and holding on to God's word. So, uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, we see two really cool things in this genealogy. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. So, you have Enoch who is one of the shortest lifespans, and you have M- Methuselah, who happens to be the, old, the longest lifespan. And it says that after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters, verse 23, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then it says this in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, when you think about that, sometimes we refer to people as, oh, the Lord took them too young. And so some, some might say, well, this just means that that's how long he lived, and then he died. But one of the things that you'll notice in this genealogy is it says, this person had a child at this age, and then they lived this many more years, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. So when you read this and it says, and the Lord took him, that gets your attention. You know, Enoch never died. God just took him up into heaven. And we actually have the New Testament to make that clear. Um, one of the things that it says in uh, uh, if, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was, he was commended as having pleased God. Could you imagine being a person in a wicked and sinful generation that has uh, the commendation of God of saying, you are pleasing to me, and God just saying, I'm taking you to heaven. By the way, two people in the Bible never died. Enoch and who else? Elijah. Elijah. You guys all know. And that's why in Revelation, people argue about the the identity of the two witnesses, and they say, We think it's Elijah and Enoch, because the two that never died, God's going to send back and give them a chance to die on earth. And so, uh, but that's for studying Revelation. Um, You know, the Bible tells us uh, what Enoch's life was like. You know, it says this in Jude chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, Jude chapter 1 is just uh, talking about false teachers. And this is another powerful thing that we learn about this, is that when you read the New Testament, it it talks about all over the place these opening chapters of Genesis, and it tells us to think about them. It always refers to them as historically happening. And it makes connections between what happened then and what's happening now. When the New Testament is written. And by the way, the things that happen in the beginning of Genesis impact us today. And when you believe incorrect things, when you discount things about the opening chapters of Genesis, it matters. There's people who say, oh, what does it matter if you believe this or you believe that? It does matter if it was a real story or a mythical story. That does matter. You know, God is not saying when he describes this, he doesn't say, you know, uh, just like in the story of Noah, God says, no, in real life, I did these things in the past. And in real life, I will do these things now. And in real life, I will do these things in the future. It does matter. And then it goes on, and just talking about Enoch, it actually tells us what he was preaching. preaching. There were false teachers. And Enoch had a message. Wouldn't you love to know what his message was? Well, Jude tells us. It was also about these things that Enoch in the seventh, the seventh from Adam prophesied saying. So it just says he was a seventh in the seventh generation from Adam. Like the New Testament tells us that. And this, is, this was his message. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. He's just saying these people, he's telling everybody, God is going to come back. He's going to bring his angels and they are going to judge your wickedness And the wicked way that you do your wickedness. And listen to this. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, people say all kinds of harsh things about God. Have you ever heard that? I was watching the news this week, which I rarely ever do. I blame Michelle for it. You know, she put it on TV. And uh, I happened to see it. But there was somebody who was making political comments about uh, some pol- political things. And on one of these liberal news stations, they said, It's a bunch of white Christians, racist and hateful toward God. And we live in a culture and a society that has no problem shaking their fist in God's face. Well, guess what? That's not new. That's what it was like in Enoch's day. And he preached about judgment that was coming. And it goes on, and it, it says um, <clears throat> that, uh, that he's going to un- judge these people who have spoken against him. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 14. It says, it was also about these things that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. So we see that. Now, Methuselah, the oldest person in the Bible. What's interesting to me about Methuselah is Methuselah died, if you do the math, he died the year of the flood. And uh, that just is interesting because his dad was a righteous man taken straight to heaven. And you just wonder, did he die of old age in the year of the flood? That could be. But was it, is it possible That Methuselah was one of the people who hardened their hearts, shook their fist in God's face, and drowned. I mean, I don't know. But he died the year of the flood. And then look at um, verse 28. It says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the pain and toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 770 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that introduces to us Noah. Now, let's jump into... um, Let's jump into the third thing, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Now, this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, one of the most difficult. And uh, I'll read it to you. But one of the things that we see here is that God is merciful, but he is holy, and he will ultimately judge sin. Uh, one of the things about the Bible is when we have things that are hard to understand, that, are, that we really struggle to, to read and understand, those are a gift. Because it makes us dig deep. It makes us think about details. It actually draws us in to some really important things. And here's the deal. No matter which interpretation you take of this passage, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, it means the same thing, that God can save the righteous and he will judge the wicked. It means the same thing. So, um, by the way, the Old Testament's pretty clear about that. It says in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says a jealous and an avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and rashful, wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Have you ever heard people say... Um, I don't like the Old Testament God. He's mean. I like the New Testament God. Um, I don't like the things other people preach, but I love the message of Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to proclaim the message that Jesus proclaimed. And then I think every time anybody says that. In fact, I was in an airport, sitting waiting for a plane, transition plane. I actually had a conversation with the lady from Portland, and that's actually literally what she said to me and what i said to her is i said um i find it interesting that a lot of people have that view and one of the things that it tells me is that they haven't read the old testament they have not read the new testament and they have not read what jesus said and then when i explained some of that to her she was appalled but let me just show you um i said the most bloody book in the bible is revelation where a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth and he slaughters everybody. Like people forget to read that part. But here's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? By the way, when you remove God's wrath, then people forget that they need to repent. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or or what about Jesus? What kinds of things did Jesus say? Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 37, For as the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says, I'm coming. People aren't going to be ready. And when I come back, they're all going to get swept away. That's not just an Old Testament message. That's an Old Testament message. That's a New Testament message. And that is the message of Jesus. So let's jump into just a little bit of controversy. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born with them, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were, men of, who were of old, the men of renowned. So that's a powerfully difficult challenge. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And I got to tell you that on this passage, um, I've had a lot of really faithful uh, professors in seminary and in college. And I'll sit in one class and the, the professor will say, this is what that means. And then I will sit in the other classroom and that professor would say, anybody who believes that is crazy. And these are all people who believe the Bible and come from the same theological foundation. And i got to tell you, I land on a particular interpretation, and then I think to myself, but am I crazy? Is that possible? So let's read this. Let's think about it. So the first thing is, it just says when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. You know, this is one of the things for us to understand, is that if you took the population growth rate from the year 2000, and you applied it to Genesis, um, by this time, there would be about 750 million people. Now, if you increase that by .001%, um, which is not very much. If you just think, well, nobody today lives to be 900 years old. People don't just keep having kids for hundreds of years. So if you factor that in, the population at the time of the flood could very easily be much higher than the world's population today. Um, If you just increased it by uh, 0.001, that would result in about 4 billion people. So there was a lot of people on the earth. And the 120 years, I've heard people say the reason that we don't live so long is because in Genesis chapter 6, right here, it says that God's going to shorten people's lives to only no more than 120 years. And what I want you to know is that that's not what that verse is saying. When it says man's day shall be 120 years, that is God's grace. That's his mercy. That's his kindness. He's looking at the earth and saying the earth is evil. Noah's the only righteous one. And then he tells Noah, build an ark and preach to people. That's God saying, I'm going to give people 120 years to repent, and then I'm going to drown them all. That's what that is. That's an expression of God's grace. So when you think about the sons of God and the daughters of men, there seems like there's a contrast there, right? Sons of God, daughters of men. When you read Job and you read different places, angels are referred to as the sons of God. And so people look at this and they go, okay, are the sons of God Angels and the daughters of men are human, are the sons of God. What else could that mean? Maybe the sons of God, I've heard some people say these are Seth's descendants and the daughters of men are Cain's descendants. And so this is just saying godly people are marrying ungodly people. I heard a sermon just recently of somebody saying that the emphasis of this point is that Christians should not marry non Christians. Which, by the way, is true. We find that in 1 Corinthians. And so they say the sons of God are, man, those are believers who are wickedly sinning by marrying unbelievers. <laughs> I think that's interesting. You're going to say, okay, all the righteous people are just doing wickedness, and they just look around. Whenever they see an attractive person, they marry them, and they don't care about their spiritual condition. Um, that's, that's, that's a view. So one is that the sons of God are rulers, Uh, Another is that they're the godly line of Seth. Another is that they're believers who are marrying unbelievers. And then the final view is that they're fallen angels. Now, I'll just tell you, I wouldn't come to that conclusion personally just um, based on what I read in Genesis chapter 6. But it sure does seem like there's some kind of a contrast there. And then when you read some of the passages in the New Testament that talk about it, um, this is what it says in Jude chapter 1 verse um, 5 and six, or verse 6. It says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And verse 6, And the angels who did not stay, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So he's just saying in this passage, there are angels that are chained. And you'll remember when Jesus cast the demons, uh, this legion of demons out of this man, one of the things in, in Luke that the demons say is they say, don't send us... Into the abyss before judgment day. So they're saying, Oh, I don't want to get sent there. And so this would seem to suggest that some angels did something and were enslaved before judgment, that they were bound, that they were chained. And then this is interesting in verse 7 because it goes on and it makes a connection between whatever happened with the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, so in the same way as the angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued, uh, per, uh, pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a, a punishment of eternal fire. You know, God intends us to read the Old Testament. This is like the big picture point and understand. If He would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in fire, He will send people to hell. If He's gonna, if He would destroy the world with the flood, He will send people to hell. Um, and so it goes on. In First Peter eighteen, it's interesting. That's not the only one. First Peter three nineteen just talks about Jesus dying for our sins, and then it says that He went and He proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So that's specifically a reference to something that happened with angels. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness kept until the day of judgment... So you just see when you look at these passages, you see that something happened. And I just got to tell you, when I think about it, there is information that's not there. Can an angel have sex with a human being and have a kid? How could that even happen? And there are some people as they think that through, they just say, well, angels are able to do physical things. Like when the angels and Jesus came to meet Abraham, they sat down and ate. So maybe this is possible. Jesus says that angels don't marry. Um, Other people would say the way that this happened was demons possessed people. We know that that could happen and that that was the avenue of procreation. So it definitely seems to me that the sons of God are angels, the daughters of men are humans, and the Bible talks about that being an illustration of God's judgment. Now, how exactly does that work? I don't know. And um, if you have a different view, good for you. But the one thing that none of us would deny is that this has a powerful message, And that is that God judges sin, but God is gracious, God is merciful, and God saves people who are his. You know, I look at verse 5 in Genesis 6, and it said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think of the most brutal, sinful, Terrible people that you could think of. You know, some of the things I think about is I think about things I've seen on TV, videos I've seen on the internet of people who have gone in, in, uh, terrorists who have taken people and cut their heads off in front of their family. We think about the recent things that happened with Hamas, and we look at that and we just think that is so evil, that is so terrible. You think about certain places that you should not go at night because if you go there, you will be prey. That's one of the things we love about Orange County, right? It's like in Orange County, you walk around anywhere, be anywhere. It's not that nothing can happen, but Orange County is a uniquely safe place. There are other places that are uniquely terrible. And what we need to understand is sometimes we think, oh my goodness, our days are so wicked. Things are so terrible. Uh, Look at what I'm seeing in politics. Look at what I'm seeing here. Oh, this is so terrible. It's so hard to grow up in this. We could never expect somebody to grow up in our day and culture and honor and obey God. And yet what we need to realize is that in these days... Every intention and thought of everybody's heart was evil continually. There was no safe place left on earth. Life is definitely not worse today than it was during the flood. One of the things we know is that that is a demonic influence in our society That cooperates with the sinful heart that indwells every person. And uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot man out, whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor. In the eyes of God. So here's how I want to wrap up this morning and think about these things. The first thing is if you're a believer, if you are a believer, you should rejoice that you will never face God's wrath. You are not a person living on this earth hoping that you can be good enough. Thinking about your day and saying, I want God's care, and I want God's blessing, and oh no, if I mess up, if I sin, I'm going to lose that. You never have to be afraid of that. You will never face God's wrath. And even when God disciplines you, it'll be like a loving father disciplining you for your good. God is gracious. He is merciful. He's forgiving. It doesn't matter how terrible your sinful past was, and it actually doesn't even matter in how you blow it today. Like, I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. Um, But when you look at King David and Cain, they both murdered. One had a repentant heart, one had a hard heart, and God forgave. God will take every sinful decision you've made, every hurtful thing that you've done to yourself or others, and God can turn that into good. Like, as believers, we don't live with this pressure and this fear The other thing is that you should allow eternity to put earthly things in perspective. Don't sweat the small stuff. We get so upset, we get so irritated by the silliest things when eternity is at stake. We need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ even when it's hard. Um, When you think about what life really consists of, and the big picture of life, we should love each other, even the people that don't treat you how you want them to. You know, you ought to love unbelievers, even when it's hard. Sometimes we can be in life, go through life, and just say, I will not be treated that way, and this person's not going to do this to me, and that person's not going to do that to me. And, and we forget That Jesus says, return good for evil, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on their head. You want to be a person that more than your comfort, more than what you deserve, that you have eternity in mind. Making huge sacrifices to reach the lost is worth it. Um, We need to understand, too, that even in the church, sometimes we struggle with people, And you know, a lot of times, in fact, the Bible tells us that people in church who cause problems are often unbelievers who are held captive by Satan to do his will. And the Bible says we need to be gracious toward troublemakers in church. And the reason for that is that God may grant them repentance leading to life. We need to recognize that. Uh, We need to understand that the suffering of this world does not compare to the good things that God has for us in heaven, and it does not compare to the terrible things that God has for those who shake their fist in God's face. That should give us a sense of urgency to reach the lost. And one of the things that I would say, too, is uh, the scariest words in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. We need to make sure that we never make the terrible mistake of thinking that because we're raised in church, that we're Christians. Because we say Christian things, that we're Christians. That if we claim to be a Christian, that were Christians. And the terrible mistake that so many parents make is they look at their kids and they remember, I remember you prayed this prayer on this day. You're a Christian and you're going to heaven. Instead of thinking about what the Bible says, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey me. People who love sin, people who don't repent when they sin. David committed the same sin as. Um, Cain but when David was confronted he repented when Cain was confronted he hardened his heart do you look into your own life do you not care about sin do you not care about pleasing the Lord do you not care about the way the Bible says to live that should worry you not that I'm not good enough to get into heaven but are you a Christian and if you look at people in your life who claim Christ, but they don't honor Christ and how they live, you should have concerns. You should pray for them. You should look for opportunities to reach out to them with the gospel instead of going, ah, I remember they prayed a prayer. They're good. I don't want to fight with them over Thanksgiving. You know, it's worth having some Thanksgiving conflict over a person's eternal destiny. And by the way, when you faithfully share the gospel, Jesus says they hated him and they'll hate you. So when you have a a gospel conversation with somebody, when you share the gospel and people don't respond positively to it, don't be shocked, don't be surprised. Expect that. It's what happened to Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for just the powerful message of Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 6. God, as we look at this, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. Lord, that we would take life seriously, that we would enjoy every day that you've given us. Lord, that we would set aside the petty conflicts, difficulties, and frustrations that we have and that we would live life in light of eternity in your name. Amen.